Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 172nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we have a village, a whole village that was suggested to us by Amanda Turk, and that is Waynesville in Ohio. And Amanda also helped us with some research, so we thank her for her assistance with that. And as we all know, it takes a village to raise some ghosts. Denise, you know what the really great thing is about Waynesville? What? It has a sauerkraut festival every year. Oh, you would love that, Diane, (laughs) since you're such a fan of sauerkraut. Oh my gosh. Most of my ancestry, as far as I know, I haven't sent my blood in to get the DNA sample that the television commercials keep pushing us to do. You have to turn in your Niederhosen. (laughs) (laughs) I might find out I'm not as German as I thought I was, but I'm supposedly a lot German. But I do not like German food, so I don't know what happened to me. So we're going to look at several locations in Waynesville, which also happen to be haunted. Yay! Those kind of go hand in hand on our show. Want to remind you guys that we are doing the live feed this Saturday. It is Christmas Eve at 9 p.m. Eastern time. We've created an event over at Facebook. We've put the link up everywhere. We'll send out a newsletter with that link as well. We're planning on being out there for at least an hour. It might be even longer than that. We're going to make an attempt to record it while we're doing it. and Hopefully we'll get that posted up as our little Christmas special for all of you guys. We'll be sharing some of your flash fiction as well as some other scary stories. And we also want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, this young lady gets to have the spotlight all to herself, Kimberly. Hey, Kimberly. All right, Denise, are you ready to go to Waynesville? Yes, I am. I know it's kind of cold in Ohio, but... It's freezing in Ohio and I'm going there again in February, brr. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and access to exclusive bonus content like Haunted True Crime Bonus Cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. (laughs) 
History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. And This Moment in Oddity was suggested by Michael Rogers. There is a large cryptid monster fish that supposedly lives in the White River of Arkansas. This creature has been dubbed the White River Monster. Sightings were first reported starting in 1915, and locals began calling it Whitey. A man named Bramlett Bateman was fishing along the river on July 1, 1937, when he claimed to see the creature. His description makes it sound really repulsive. He said that it had gray skin and nasty, long, spiny-type teeth, and that it was really large. He said that it was as white as a car and three cars long. Reports stopped coming in for a while, but the monster was seen again in 1971. These reports sounded similar as the creature was reported to have gray skin, but these descriptions included a horn growing out of its forehead. Some witnesses said it was 20 feet long with a spiny back. Now, some people may say that there's no such thing, and people were seeing some kind of mutant fish, but in 1973, the Arkansas legislature signed a bill creating the White River Monster Refuge along the White River. The refuge is located between the southern point on the river known as the Old Grand Glaze and a northern point on the White River known as Rosie. This bill makes it illegal to harm the monster within the refuge area, and that certainly is odd. Sweet dreams. This Day in History. On this day, December 23rd in 1888, artist Vincent Van Gogh chops off his left ear and gives it to a prostitute. Van Gogh was a depressed and anxious man who decided after much failure to try his hand at being an artist in 1880. His early work reflected his experiences among impoverished peasants and miners. In 1886, he moved to Paris with his brother and met other artists who taught him to use more color in his paintings. Van Gogh's mental wellness continued to deteriorate, though, and on December 23rd, in a fit of lunacy, he tried to attack another artist who was living with him with a knife. He turned the blade on himself and cut off the lower part of his left ear. He then allegedly wrapped up the ear and gave it to a prostitute at a brothel near him in Arles, France. He checked himself into a hospital to fix the damage, and then he checked himself into a mental institution. He was there a year and created some of his most famous works at that time, including a portrait that documented this tragic event in his life, self-portrait with bandaged ear. Despair and loneliness continued to plague him after his release, and on July 27, 1890, he shot himself and died two days later at the age of 37. Today, Van Gogh's masterpieces sell for record-breaking prices, but when he was alive, he sold only one painting and was the poster boy for tortured, starving artists. Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes and I run the lift. It's a very busy time of year and there's lots to do, but someone out there, you know who you are, 
asked me to say naughty. So hello and Merry Christmas to everyone who listens to The Lift and History Goes Bump. We hope you all have a wonderful Christmas. Now, I'm off to visit some old man named Scrooge, who is going to have quite a surprise when he rides my lift. <laughs> Tempting the spirits, especially at Christmas, is not a good idea. It tends to make them rather angry. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Waynesville, Ohio is known as the antique capital of the Midwest. At the town's beginnings, though, it was an important Quaker settlement. The Quaker meeting established here in 1803 was the first in southwestern Ohio. A stagecoach line connected Waynesville to the rest of the state, and eventually the village would serve as a stop along the Underground Railroad. Despite having a pretty peaceful beginning, Waynesville has become known as one of, if not the most haunted city in Ohio. With 36 reputed haunted places, that is no wonder. In this episode, we will be going to visit several of the historic locations that also have ghostly activity. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Waynesville. We've heard of these two tribes before, Denise, the Hopewell and the Adena. They inhabited the area from 1000 BC to 800 AD, and then the Fort Ancient people were here until 1500 AD. Six years prior to Ohio becoming a state, the village of Waynesville was founded. The year was 1797, and this was a group of English settlers. They were led by an English engineer by the name of Samuel Highway, and they set the foundation for Waynesville. This group included physician Dr. Evan Beans, Methodist minister Reverend John Smith, and scientist Sir Francis Bailey. The hope was that they would establish a capital for the Northwest Territory. So that's what Ohio was originally known as, was the Northwest Territory. Highway had already surveyed the area in 1792, and a settlement party had come out in 1796 to clear the land. They purchased 30,000 acres in the Simi's Purchase between the Little and Great Miami Rivers. And I always think it's fascinating that the rivers there were called Miami. The founding group brought 10 tons of supplies on a 12 by 36 foot Kentucky Ark flatboat and traveled via the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers to the Ohio River. And I'm sure I got that wrong. And I know I've gotten it wrong in the other episode that we did that mentioned that river. So forgive me for that. I forgive you. Primitive log shelters were built first with nicer log cabins following. And Highway platted out the village in a rectangular design similar to that of English villages. Formal parks and squares were arranged around a central public square. There were 11 named squares in all, each encompassing four acres. What does that remind you of? Savannah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of when I heard that. The squares still have those names today, marked on the corners with signposts. Fish ponds, groves of ornamental trees, and long winding paths were incorporated as well as several fountains. A government house was built in the public square. The group named the village after General Mad Anthony Wayne. General Wayne's troops camped on Camp Creek nearby. And there's a fun fact about this is that there's a legend that the paymaster for Wayne's troop hid the payroll during a Native American attack and that the money has never been found. So for you treasure hunters... General Wayne's troops' payroll is sitting there somewhere near Camp Creek. So go find it. (laughs) Better hope it wasn't paper money. When the Revolutionary War broke out, Wayne raised a regiment and he was named a colonel. 
His regiment fought in Canada where he was wounded. He received the rank of Brigadier General in 1777. An interesting point in his military career occurred shortly after this promotion. General Washington asked General Wayne to use his forces to harass the British's rear station. The British general, No Flint Gray, found out that Wayne's forces were hiding out and they hit him with a surprise attack. 158 American forces were massacred. What gave the British the upper hand in this attack was the order by General Gray to use only bayonets. That's why he was nicknamed No Flint. He reasoned that if they only used bayonets, then they would know who the rebels were in the dark because they would be shooting their guns. Makes sense. Oh, that's pretty brilliant, actually. It, uh, it worked wonderfully, and General Wayne was just shamed by this attack because he felt like he failed. So he called for his own court-martial. General Washington did not want to do that because he knew this was a surprise attack. General Wayne couldn't have even known it was coming. And you certainly wouldn't expect the British to be so sneaky because, generally speaking, the rebels were the ones who were sneaky. Yeah, the British usually just walked in and the rose and just got mowed down, basically. Yeah, let's wear red coats, which you can see really well in the woods, and we'll just do this all in a nice little order. <laughs> and the rebels were the ones shooting from the trees and, and hiding and stuff. So it was just interesting that they had this. But he did yield General Wayne's multiple requests for this court-martial. The court of inquiry was made up of Generals Conway, Mullenberg, Sullivan, Whedon, and Huntington, also, Colonels Dayton, Stevens, Bradley, McClenachin, Stewart, DeHart, Thaxton, and Davis were also on that court of inquiry. They unanimously decided that Wayne, quote, did every duty that could be expected from an active, brave, and vigilant officer under the orders which he then had. The court do acquit him with the highest honor. So that was just a little rabbit hole that I went down. I hope you guys didn't mind going with me. We'll start calling you the white rabbit. You know I love my rabbit holes. Yes, you do. I like them, too, because they make things interesting. Several of these early cabins from the early 1800s can be seen today at the Pioneer Village at Caesars Creek Lake area. Two of those original buildings are the Levi Lucan's Cabin, which is located at the front of the property, and the Lucan's Barn. The Lucan's house was built in 1807 and is said to be haunted by the ghost of Uncle Bob, who was killed in an automobile accident near the site in the 1940s. Wouldn't you know they'd call him Uncle Bob? Uncle Bob. <laughs> the home is the only building in the village original to the site. Caesars Creek State Park features fossils from the Ordovician period 450 and 500 million years ago, embedded in the limestone. Hmm. Interesting stone to be embedded in. Yeah, there's a lot of limestone in this little village, so that might be why we have so many hauntings. Yes, and we do have a fun fact from Amanda that her parents' home has a retaining wall and outdoor steps made of this limestone, and you can still see shell-shaped fossils in the rock. That's really cool. That's only something that I'm used to seeing out here, where we're close to the ocean. Mm-hmm. So, very interesting. Waynesville was also a stop on the Underground Railroad, with several locations being places of refuge. Though the building no longer stands, the old Miami house, a.k.a. the Rogers house, the Morrow house, or the Cornell house, was originally built as a tavern in 1827. And of course, all those names pertain to whoever happened to be owning it at what era. <laughs> Purportedly, the tavern had a hidden room in its attic and tunnels that led to other buildings in the area and down to the Little Miami River. The building served as the location of the first Waynesville National Bank and then the Wayne Township Library until 1954. 
A year later, the old Miami house was torn down so that a diner could be built. So I hope the diner is happy. (laughs) I just, I hate to hear that such a historic property was torn down, especially when it, you know, held a hidden room for the Underground Railroad. I know, exactly. And now we have, I guess, burgers and fries. I guess. I don't know. Grits, I don't know. Hopefully it's still open. We're going to focus on three locations in Waynesville that are reportedly haunted. And when I say locations, I'm kind of using that loosely because when we get into talking about the Quaker Meeting House, there's two houses and there's also a Friendship Boarding House. And we're including those three as its own location. All of these locations are reportedly haunted. The town itself claims to be the most haunted in Ohio, as Denise said in the introduction. So that being said, it has ghost tours, which run summer and fall, May to October. And there's also ghost hunting classes from a local group called Paravisions. So you can get a degree in ghost hunting? Well, I don't think you get a degree, but they probably give you a little bit of coaching on what to do. I'd probably get a D because I wouldn't tempt the spirit. I know you would sit there and go, I refuse. So they'd have to give you an F, Denise, not even a D. They would say an F for no effort. No, I would get a D for Tim Bunking. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Because you would at least go as far as to be Tim Bunking. You would be debunking what everybody else would be tempting. There you go. I just, I don't know. Is it like, did you hear that 101? (laughs) You have to practice. Okay. And I, you know, if I'm going to be running around screaming, did you hear that? I better build up my muscles too and wear tight black shirts. And okay. Anyway. Our first location is the Stetson House. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Denise? So the Stetson House is one of the most famous landmarks in Waynesville and is now home to the Trendy Bindi Boutique. I just, Trendy Bindi's Boutique, this is a place that Denise, she loves walking through these little villages like this. So she'd be like, I'm in. I would just have to take a picture of the sign because it's fun. (laughs) But, you know, just kind of. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole now. The reason I picked one of our stops on our our road trip two years ago was because I'm like, oh, Chattanooga, it would just be fun to stay there because it's Chattanooga. What a fun name. And it was a really, really cool city. It was. So I did enjoy that. So Trendy Bendy's Boutique is probably really cool, too. Uh, Yes. The original building here is believed to have been a log cabin, but there's some confusion as to if that is true. The home that stands here now was built in 1810 by a wheelwright and his family. Wheelwrights would build and repair wooden wheels. I didn't know what that was, so I looked it up because I'm like, what's a wheelwright? Yeah, I wouldn't have known either. Now, I've heard that that's the specific point of reference, but I've also heard that they built whole wagons, too. But I don't know. Wheelwright mainly was a focus on wooden wheels. Which that would be... I mean, I guess you couldn't have a wagon without those, so... But they that's go hand a talent, hand. too, to get the wood to bend like that oh, to yeah. be round. Good Absolutely. job, wheelwright. Hiram and Louisa Lyric were local farmers with a growing family, and they bought the house in the 1840s and renovated. They added a kitchen to the back of the house. The couple had 10 children. Louisa's maiden name was Stetson. The Stetson family were hatters in New Jersey. Her brother John had contracted tuberculosis, and a doctor suggested that he move to the warmer and drier air out west. He decided to stop at Louisa's on his way to the West, and he stayed for a period of time in the early 1860s. His stay was not good for Louisa as she contracted TB2. John continued to Colorado where he took up panning for gold while he recovered. He needed a good hat to protect his head, and he didn't like the typical prospector's hats. He used a thick beaver felt to form a rugged hat. 
He did this without tanning, and that hat was lighter. It withstood the weather and maintained its shape. It was considered unusually large with a wide brim and high crown. He grew very fond of the hat and wore it all the time. While out on the trail, a cowboy approached him and asked to see the hat and offered to pay for it with a $5 gold piece. Stetson jumped at the offer and he was inspired. Maybe others would buy this hat too. He'd been cured of his tuberculosis and in 1865 he decided to head home. He needed money though if he was going to start a company and so he stopped at Louise's again. Now I'm thinking you gave her tuberculosis. Maybe she shouldn't let you come back to the house. No, no, he's like, okay, I gave you TB, and now can you give me some money? Now, I've heard him referenced as the black sheep of the family, and I didn't go too far down his path because he's got a really long history. As a matter of fact, you know that Stetson University that we have here in Florida, Denise? I would guess it's named after him. It certainly is. So he did live here for a bit of a time as well. So, But whether it was the black sheep or not, Not only did he bring his sister tuberculosis, but he asked her for a loan. And keep in mind, she and her husband had been farmers. They had 10 kids. Now, not all of the children had survived. So I'm not sure how many children they had in the home at the time. But let's just say they didn't have a lot of money. She gave them $60, which in that time probably was a lot of money for them. So she puts her faith in him, gives him this loan. And the Stetson Hat Company was born, along with the signature Boss of the Plains Hat. Denise, you and I know the Stetson hat really well. One thing that I do miss about Colorado is usually about this time of the year, right after Christmas, we'd be heading out to the National Western Stock Show. Yes, we would. Checking out all of the the rodeo out there and the horses and the cows. And even though it was always freezing, I used to love to go out there. And I don't believe I ever owned an official Stetson hat, but I loved looking at them and We each had our own cowboy hats and such. So, you know, we're from Colorado where everybody's a cowboy, right, Denise? Absolutely. Denise actually was at this conference with some people and there was a girl who asked her about her horse. And Denise goes, what do you mean my horse? And the girl goes, well, doesn't everybody in Colorado have a horse? (laughs) Yeah, so it was cute because she had never, in her defense, she'd never been out of like her her borough in New York, that's she'd never been in any other state. So her idea of Colorado was the wild, wild west. So she thought we just rode our horses to work and tethered them outside. That's what we did. I actually would have preferred a horse in the snow, even though it would have been colder, because there were many mornings that I was like, if this car doesn't turn over. Although the house is called the Stetson House, the lyrics were never paid back the loan and never received any of the benefits of the success of the company. And even worse, Louisa would go on to die of the disease her brother brought her in 1879. She died in the house a little over 60 years old. The Lyric family held on to the house until the turn of the century, and then a young schoolteacher bought the home and lived there until she died in the 1950s. There is not a clear history from this point until the 1980s, when an antique shop moved into the building. Another shop named the Cranberry Bog bought the shop in the 1990s, And in 2007, the boutique was moved into the house. So them using the name Stetson House is really just trying to kind of bank off the success of the Stetson Hat Company because he didn't actually live there. He stayed there for a short period of time and it was his sister's maiden name. So the fact they call it the Stetson House, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and that's kind of rude to her because, I mean, she's the one who lived in the house and she's the one who got the short end of all the sticks. I mean, I guess she was a Stetson. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, wow. I, I mean, I was just like, he didn't pay her back? 
Obviously, he had plenty of money to pay her back, so he could have paid for her treatment so that she could go out to Colorado and get better, too. But maybe, just maybe, that's why there's something at unrest in this house. Because it was from the time that Louisa died that weird activity started being reported in the house. Apparently, she was a baker and she really liked gingerbread. So there is this lingering scent of gingerbread that people reportedly smell. Now, again, this is a boutique. So when I hear about scents and boutiques, I do wonder, is it a candle? Is it something else? Don't know that that is necessarily legitimate. But mirrors here do not stay on the walls. It's as if someone does not like that they cannot see their reflection, maybe. So they just jump off the wall constantly and get broken. To me, that almost sounds like you've got some kind of a ghost who's going, where am I? Right. A woman named Samantha McKeon said she was shopping for a quilt here, and when she was upstairs, she felt cold fingers touch the back of her neck. She said, I just had to get out of there. I felt goosebumps. A full-bodied apparition had been seen and photographed featuring a dark-haired woman in period clothing. This could be either Louisa or the school teacher. Nobody is for sure which one of them it is. One man posted an eerie photo he took of the Stetson house back in 2001, And this was put up on the Ohio Exploration Society page. There's a window above the porch and you can see what appears to be a ghostly figure. And we do have that photograph in the show note. In the description, we'll have the link to the show notes. If you don't see the description with the podcast, just go to historygoesbump.com and click on the blog tab and that'll bring you over to the blog. And then you just look for Haunted Waynesville and the picture will be in the middle of the notes there definitely see something in that upper window. Now, the problem is, how do we know that that's not somebody else in the house who happens to be looking out that window? When you zero in on that picture, it does look a little bit not clear, like a real formed human being. Doubting minds like my own do wonder if that really is a ghost. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure what it is, but it's something. Now, the next location is what I described earlier. This is going to be dealing with a lot of Quaker locations. In 1801, Ezekiel Clever, a devout Quaker, arrived in Waynesville from Virginia and built a home for his family who followed him the next year. Other Quakers came from Virginia as well, along with Quakers from Georgia and North and South Carolina. They wanted to get away from the slave states that they were living in because they were avowed abolitionists. The group established the Miami Monthly Meeting of the Society of Friends in Clever's home in 1803. They quickly outgrew the space and began construction on the White Brick Meeting House in 1811. The White Brick was built by John Southersweight in the traditional rectangular gabled roof vernacular style. There are separate recessed doorways and long windows that hold six panes each. Most meetings of Quakers in southern Ohio can trace their origins to the White Brick House. In 1828, a division arose within the group, and there was a split into the Orthodox and the Hicksite branches. The Hicksites kept the white brick, and the Orthodox would go on to build the red brick meeting house in 1836. It was very unique to have two branches of Quakers in the same village. I wasn't able to find what caused that division, but as we all know, when it comes to religious denominations, sometimes it doesn't take much for you to decide that you're going to do your own thing. In 1905, the Friends Boarding Home was built to the northeast of the White Brick Meeting House and established as a place for retired Quakers and single teachers to live. And just for your information, not only is this boarding home still standing, but so is the White Brick House, 
the red brick meeting house and the school. So all of those buildings are still there, That's which is very cool. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Several years of planning started in 1900, and the group raised $15,000 before grading of the land began. The Miami Gazette reported that the plans for the building were as such, quote, the building is to be 58 feet front by 50 feet deep, two-story with basement below and unfinished attic above. The foundation and all walls are made of concrete, outside walls to be veneered with dressed brick, roof to be tile, supported by an iron post above the square. The contract includes complete installation of both city and rainwater. The latter hot and cold in bathrooms, closets, washstands, and laundry. Light is provided for except fixtures. All drainage is to be provided, and a 300-barrel cistern will be placed outside the building. The contract includes the laying of cement walks in front and at the sides of the building. The price complete on the entire contract is $10,000. Wow. And I think it was supposed to have 19 rooms. That's crazy. That's less than we pay for cars now. And it's a really neat building when you see it. And when you think they'd saved 15000 and it was going to cost them 10000 to build. And that, you know, wasn't that terribly long ago. It was the early 1900s. So that was a pretty good price. The Fox Brothers from Cincinnati were contracted to do the work, but they went bankrupt in 1905. So a man named Aaron B. Chandler took over supervising the construction. He was a Civil War veteran, yes, even as a Quaker, and he would be the first superintendent of the Friends Boarding House. What I thought was interesting is when I was reading his history, I went, Civil War veteran? How is that possible? He was a Quaker. And they're supposed to be peaceful, you know, no fighting in wars, no handling of guns. And the regiment that he was in actually had several Quakers, and they called it the Quaker Regiment. And the guy who led them would not carry a gun. So I think they were led by a colonel and he would not carry a gun. So I'm not sure how they fought, but um, they had to have done something because he survived. And a fun fact about this is there was a fire in the 1900s that burned up all the law papers and council minutes. But Chandler painstakingly rewrote all of the village's ordinances. So that's the kind of guy he was. I, I can't even imagine being like, oh, everything got burned up. Don't worry, I'll just I'll write it all down. Lydia Ann Carnard of New Vienna, Ohio, agreed to become the first matron of the house. Chandler's wife had died from cancer in 1903, and after working for three years with Lydia at the house, the two decided to get married. I thought that was really sweet. They were both in their 60s. Work romance. And after they got married, I think this was particularly Lydia's idea. She decided, I don't want to live in this boarding house. Let's get a house. So they got us a house up the road. And so they wouldn't they wouldn't stay in the boarding house. They would go up the house up to their other house. I would prefer to be in my own house than with everybody else. Especially a boarding house. You've always got people coming and going. Today the building houses the museum at the friend's home. There are twenty two rooms of historic exhibits. It houses more than exhibits though. Rumors of ghosts residing in this building have been floating about for decades. There's no kitchen in the building, but that doesn't stop the haunting sounds of kitchen like activity. There's also the sound of an organ playing, and the apparition of a young girl named Mary has been seen at times. Paranormal investigations have caught EVPs that seem to be of a male who claims to have been beat up in his sleep. There was a lot of other things, a lot of help me type EVPs, so I'm not sure where those are coming from. If something happened at this boarding house, but it was mostly women who lived there, so just thought that was kind of unique. The White Brick Meeting House has hauntings as well. A candle used to be placed in the window to let runaway slaves know that this was a safe haven for them. That ghostly candle can still sometimes be seen in the window. And a former teacher who was particularly petite 
and would wear her hair pulled back into a bun has been seen staring out of one of the windows by passersby. So apparently the windows of the white brick meeting house are haunted. And then we have the Hamill House Inn. The Hamill House Inn is very unique when it comes to the facade. The building almost appears to be two buildings smashed together because half of it is brick and half of it is wood, and there's a long-railed balcony connecting the two to each other. Originally, a log tavern stood on this spot on Wabash Square on Main Street and was owned by James Corey. That opened in 1787 and was a stop on the stagecoach line. A man named James Jennings arrived in town from New Jersey and he bought up the property. The log tavern was raised and a wooden frame structure was built to replace it sometime before 1806. This opened as a tavern known as Jennings House. Jenny did not own the title to the land until a man named David Faulkner got a patent for the land in 1807. For those who aren't sure about what a land patent is, simply put, it's just a land-grant document signed by a government head like a president and sealed, making it a patent or permanent. Yeah, I had no idea. I was like, what is a... Because when you hear patent, I'm always thinking of like an invention. Exactly. So I'm like, what is a patent for land? It just basically means that it's permanent. Faulkner then deeded the lots to Jennings, of which there were 3.5, for $350. In 1817, Jennings deeded the business to John Worrell, and in 1822, Worrell added the Flemish bond brick portion of the building we see today, and it is in the federal vernacular style. There were originally three stories built, but the third story was removed later. During his ownership, the inn hosted President Martin Van Buren and Vice President Richard Johnson. He ran the business until 1831 and then sold to Keene, Barnhart, and Durand, and later Inn McLean ran the inn. In 1841, the inn would be bought by Enoch Hamill and would come to be known as the Hamill House Inn. When I saw a picture of this building, I went, wow, it's not very pretty. And the reason is because those two parts of the building are very stark And they really do look like two buildings have been pushed together because the brick portion. Now, it was three stories that they brought down to two, but they didn't line up the roofs. So the roof of the brick portion is higher than the wooden part. And so it just, it looks kind of ramshackle, (laughs) I guess you could say. Under the ownership of Hamill, the inn would experience its most popularity. He was a Wayne Township trustee and candidate for county sheriff. Things got a bit too wild at the inn for some of the Quaker residents in the village. So keep in mind, this is mostly a Quaker village, and you got these taverns going up. Well, one of them in particular was named Mrs. Anna O'Neill, and she described the activities over at the Hamill House as bacchanalian revelry and ribald conduct. She lived right across the street, so not a great place for her to be if she doesn't like bar activity. I love that word. Bacchanalian revelry. I'm going to use that from now on, Denise. The Food and Wine Festival. We saw some Bacchanalian revelry. (laughs) She was so disgusted with what she considered daily debauchery that she parked a large wagon in front of her cabin so that her children could not see the antics at the inn. Hamill did run that inn until 1863. A man named W. Augustin bought the inn, but we're not sure on dates other than he was the owner during the 1930s. Yeah, so Hamill was at the end until 1863, and then this Gustin comes in sometime in the 1930s, and I don't know at what point he bought it, so I'm not sure if there was something, you know, some other ownership in between. I found these great documents that got me all the way up to Hamill, 
And it was like, boom, 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 boom. And then I was like, what happened? Well, we do know that he would be the owner to remodel and refit the building so that it had electricity and hot and cold running water. And at this time was when the third floor was removed as well. He wanted to make the place a first-class establishment. He also renamed it Gustin House and added a livery and feed stable. Anybody staying there should have been really careful about leaving their horse in the stable because the rumor is that Gustin had a taste for fine horse flesh. (laughs) I read that in a couple places, so I'm like, I don't know. Did that mean that he used to butcher horses every so often and serve them up? I know for sure if I ever... I was going to say parked my horse. If I ever kept my horse in the stable and it disappeared, we would have some pretty strong words. I'm just thinking back when Gustin was running the inn, do not have the daily special. Ew. <laughs> Longtime Waynesville residents and restaurant tours, the Bowman family bought the property and operated it as Hamill House Inn, a bed and breakfast. And at some point before it actually became the bed and breakfast in the 1980s, it was apartment. The Hamill House Inn hosts its own ghost and goblet tour every October and is a stop on the town's walking tour. So basically what you get to do is have dinner here. There is a tour guide and the owner of the inn tell you a little bit about the history of the house and the hauntings that go on there. And then they take you up the street for about an hour and point out all of the historic properties and hauntings there as well. Definitely something I think we need to do eventually, Denise. That would be fun. Yeah, this just sounds like a great place to visit. And if you can have dinner along with it, fabulous. And when I looked on TripAdvisor, it looks like the food is amazing as well. Oh, yummy. I love to eat. I know that. (laughs) And that makes sense because this building is considered the most haunted location in Waynesville. One of the more frequently seen apparitions belongs to a cat. Yes, we have another bed and breakfast with a ghost cat, but this one is unique in that we've never heard of these other spirit cats leaving fur behind. Hmm. This cat routinely leaves fur on the stairs where it likes to sit. It's also been seen roaming the halls and disappears quite often. I, Denise, have never heard of an animal leaving fur behind. Neither have I, so that's very, very unique. Yeah, disembodied footsteps and voices and other poltergeist-like activity like bottles and other items falling have been reported. A shadow figure has been seen on multiple occasions. One of those reports came from a man who stayed in room three. He had the inn completely to himself, and so he was shocked when he was awakened by the noise of a loud party. He flew into the hallway to yell at the partygoers. It was completely silent in the hallway. He checked downstairs and saw no one. When he awoke the next morning, he saw a shadow figure floating in his room and then watched as it passed through the wall into room two. So I'm not sure if it was a one ghost party that was just making a lot of noise, but a shadow figure was getting crazy, I guess. The most famous ghost here belongs to room number four. There are only five guest rooms, so the chances of ending up in this haunted room, Denise, are pretty high. Exactly. So So three out of how many? And look, the guy who was in three had something going on, too. So either this ghost travels or there's more than one and quite a few of the rooms are haunted. The story goes that a young merchant came to the village peddling his wares, which may have been gold watches or some other kind of jewelry. He checked into the inn, and you probably assume that he either died in his room of natural causes or suicide or that someone murdered him, since he seems to be hanging around in the afterlife. But we can't tell you what happened, because this is one of our history's mysteries disappearances. He checked in, but never checked out and was never seen again, at least not alive. So did they rename it at that point the Hotel California? (laughs) I guess they could have. 
If this truly is his ghost, then we think it's safe to assume that he met with some kind of bad fate here. And since he was carrying expensive wares, we think it's safe to assume the motive was robbery. Now, I did find a newspaper article that was a modern day article written, I don't know, probably four or five years ago. And the journalist in that mentioned that this room number four was the scene of a grisly 19th century murder. But that's the only place that I saw that. And I didn't get any details for that. So there may be a newspaper out there somewhere that talks about what happened here. I couldn't find it. So I don't know for sure. I believe on the ghost tour, they do say that a murder happened at the Hamill house, but we don't have any actual facts to go with that. So I don't know for sure, but I think we can all surmise what we think probably happened here. There are reports seeing his full-bodied apparition in this room, but even more common are the complaints of him getting into bed with guests, Denise. Yeah, I don't think I would like that much. Mary Fessler wrote a blog on stories in the playground about her son's experiences while working at the Hamill House Inn, and she shared the following. On at least two occasions, he heard what sounded like an unseen girl crying in the basement. His co-worker also reported a similar occurrence, claiming she had heard a young girl ask her to hurry up and had witnessed glasses sliding off of tables, seemingly without explanation. It is possible that the cries of the young girl described by this woman's son are residual and date back to the Underground Railroad. Tunnels ran through this area, and people who have had basements in town complain of hearing children crying in those basements. When Amanda sent me her email, she had also written in there that the cemetery is reportedly a portal to hell, and one girl claimed to have seen a towering black form that reached all the way up to the sky from the plot. To be honest, the stories about the cemetery may be more due to overactive imaginations and some illegal substances than any otherworldly activity, (laughs) which could be true. I did see in several places that there were reports that the cemetery was haunted. Of course, everybody likes to say that all cemeteries are haunted. So she said, my own experiences in Waynesville have been more unsettling feelings and nothing more. Do the former residents and guests of those places still roam about in the afterlife? Are sightings just wishful thinking or overactive imaginations? Is Waynesville haunted? That is for you to decide. We do have show notes with our sources and also a link to the ghost tours and classes, which are featured at the Friends Home Museum. I wanted to include a little extra here. It doesn't have anything to do with hauntings, but I just thought this was really interesting. This is about the Holloway Tavern. This was a tavern that was owned by David Holloway. He was a well-known Quaker in town, and he had this prime spot on 3rd and High Street where he built not only this tavern, but there was also a store there. And he bought those lots from the previously mentioned David Faulkner. The following is taken from an article, Miami Monthly Meeting, Part 1. It was written by Robert Hatton. It was printed in the Miami Gazette on March 15, 1876. David Holloway had much of a consequential air about him, and in the earlier part of his time was tenacious of plainness, bringing his children to meeting, etc., and would close his store on meeting days. It is related of him that when suspenders were first brought about, his sons, then in their teens, procured some, which their father no sooner discovered, that he took them away and burned them. No No suspenders. suspenders. (laughs) Subsequently, the youngsters procured flax and twisted it into a substitute. On this becoming known to David, he destroyed them and reprimanded his children. This produced a dislike to the society, and when they reached majority, they left friends and married from among them. No doubt David was perfectly sincere in his views, as he never adopted the condemned suspenders in his own wardrobe. 
But I just thought when I saw that newspaper article that that was really, really interesting to see this guy getting bent out of shape because his sons were wearing suspenders and that they left the faith over that. It's a good reason to leave a faith. Sure. All right. Well, we definitely have to get up to Ohio. It's got all kinds of haunted stuff going on there. Our next episode... Hopefully we will be recording our Christmas Eve live stream. We'll be putting that up as our Christmas Day special. And then after that, we're going to be going to Brisbane. Yay, Brisbane. And we're going to check out the Commissariat store. We'll also have the eighth installment of Spectral Edition. So I'm looking forward to heading down to Australia again. Yes. We want to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And I wanted to share an email that we got from Matthew, and he sent us some feedback about the Whidbey Island episode, Denise. So we've been getting a lot of feedback on that. Oh, very cool. He said, I was just listening to your latest episode on Whidbey Island, and he just wanted to share a couple of things to add some clarity. First, I've worked at both the Fort Casey Inn and the Crockett Bed and Breakfast. I've been personal friends of the Whitlow since 1994. My father was their minister, and it was him who cleansed the property. How cool is that? I know. I was like, can you believe that? Prior to that, I remember several occasions of hearing bumps and scuffs upstairs when the house was otherwise empty, as well as books being dropped out of the bookshelves in the library. The reason for the haunting of the Fort Casey Inn is due to the doctor's cottage, which also served as a morgue for the base. The young girl that was mentioned is reported to be an officer's wife who died in childbirth. The time I worked there, which was the late 1990s, that unit was unavailable to stay in due to the incredibly creepy situations experienced by both staff and guests. So that that island's got some really creepy things going on there for sure. We also have a couple of iTunes reviews to share with everyone, and we're going international. The first one is from Canada. I'm so excited, Denise. We haven't had any international reviews in quite some time. This is from Tom Ontario. Well-researched and fascinating five stars. I work at a job where I have a few hours a day of downtime. Your podcast fills that gap and makes the day go faster. It is well-researched and fascinating stuff. Keep them coming. Thanks so much, Tom. We appreciate that. And then this one is Jules Down Under. Five stars. Good day, Diane and Denise. I love listening to your show. It's a great combination of history and the paranormal that I love. I'm listening from the start and find them addictive. Always eager for the next episode. And it's great that you recommend other shows, too, that I've started to listen to also. Thanks so much, lovely ladies. Well, thanks, Julie. And you've become such an active member of the Spooktacular crew. So thanks for joining us there as well. Hopefully we'll get to visit you down under one day. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank Joe for his one-time donation. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. (laughs) 